Section 7 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Physics, Chapter 3. Heat, Part 2. More remarkable than the effect of the freezing of water upon the surrounding air is that of evaporation. As the freezing of water in winter warms the air, so the evaporation of water in the open seasons of the year will cool it. The amount of evaporated water which can exist in the air depends upon the temperature. If the air has absorbed all the water vapor which it is capable of holding, it is evident that a fall in temperature will succeed in condensing a part of the suspended water vapor, which then falls as rain or settles as mist. If the air is not completely saturated, it is evident that considerable cooling may take place before the dew point is reached and condensation of water begins. In the hot days of the summer months, the air is capable of taking up and holding in suspension a large amount of moisture. On such days, the oppressiveness of the heat is greatly augmented by the muggy condition of the atmosphere. The excessive moisture of the human body cannot escape into the air, for the latter is already surcharged with moisture, or nearly so. The grateful effect of a breeze is thus made clear, for the excess of moisture which evaporates from the body has no opportunity to saturate the air immediately around, before a fresh supply of air appears to take up the exhalation from the skin. It was formerly held by scientific inquirers that the dew fell from the upper regions of the atmosphere. That idea has been quite swept away within recent times, and it is now known that the formation of dew is due to the condensation of water vapor in the air close to the ground. A heavy dew is said to be the forerunner of fine weather. It actually indicates an unusual fall in temperature from the heat of the day, nothing more. The formation of condensed particles of water vapor in the upper regions of the atmosphere is generally conceded to be due to the impalpable dust particles which float everywhere in the terrestrial atmosphere, rising to considerable heights. As water vanishes so strangely into the thin vapors of the air, so solid bodies have been observed by everyone to disappear and dissolve in liquids. There are probably few persons, if any, who have not noticed that sugar dissolves more readily in hot water than in cold, while salt is about equally soluble in both. In general, the solutions of solids in water or any other solvent are made easier by the application of heat. So also with solutions of liquids, for the viscosity of most liquids is reduced by the application of heat. They become less dense and therefore mix more readily with the molecules of the liquid in which they are dissolved. Solution is such a familiar everyday phenomenon that the complete disappearance of solid material in a liquid is taken as a matter of course. Yet it is truly a wonderful thing that a lump of sugar or a teaspoon of salt dissolved in a glass of water will not raise the level of the water, and so soon as solution is complete will leave absolutely no visible trace of its presence. As the temperature is raised, more of the solid may be made to disappear, 
even boiling water however will take up but a limited quantity of a solute and on cooling this may readily be seen by dropping in a crystal of the dissolved material or otherwise disturbing the mixture causing it to exhibit the beautiful and fascinating phenomenon of crystallization a strange contrast to this condition of things is found in the fact of the solution of gases in liquids here the effect of temperature is quite the reverse of what has just been observed the cooler the liquid the greater the quantity of gas which may be dissolved in it the quantity of gas which may be dissolved by a single pint of water is amazing in some instances almost incredible hydrogen chloride for example is soluble to the extent of over three hundred pints in a single liter of water and the same quantity of water will dissolve without artificial pressure one thousand one hundred forty eight pints of ammonia gas the effect of heat on a liquid or indeed on any body being recognized as an increase of its molecular velocities the question arises as to how this increase of velocity is transferred from one part of matter to another the most direct way for this to take place is by the transference of energy from one molecule to the next in general this is accomplished most readily by the molecules of a solid especially solids of exceptional density such as metals for example a short copper or iron wire held for a moment in a hot flame soon becomes too hot at the other end to hold a silver wire will conduct the heat of the flame to the hand even more quickly a stone feels colder to the hand than a piece of wood at exactly the same temperature for the obvious reason that the stone being a better conductor carries off the heat of the body more rapidly the tongue will freeze fast in winter to the blade of an axe a fact well known in cold countries where the bit of a horse's bridle cannot be put directly in his mouth if it has been out in the frosty air the same axe blade lying in the summer sun will feel hotter than any other part of the axe liquids however are poor conductors as has been shown by the fact that burning alcohol on the surface of water will register no perceptible heat in an instrument so sensitive as the air thermometer whose bulb is placed but half an inch below the surface of the water gases are almost non-conducting dry air writes a physicist of today is a practical vacuum as regards the rays of heat liquids and gases however may carry considerable heat by the motions of comparatively large masses of themselves in a heated condition this transference of heat by the movement of masses of a liquid or gas is termed convection the term thus describes the manner in which temperature is adjusted by winds in the atmosphere and currents in bodies of water yet another method of the conveyance of heat is that by which most heat in the universe is carried vis-a-vis -vis radiation the heat which is received from an open fire is not carried by conduction or convection not by convection for the movement of masses of air is all toward the fire not away from it not by conduction for gases have been shown to be very poor conductors the only other possible explanation of the passage of the heat rays must then be found in a non-material form of energy to this form of heat transference the term radiation has been applied radiation thus explains the sensation of heat felt from a burning house even when the house is at a considerable distance and the wind is blowing toward the fire 
the method by which the heat of the sun is conveyed to the earth will likewise readily be seen to be the method of radiation there could evidently be no mass movements nor yet molecular movements where is neither mass nor molecule this radiant property must then be a function of the ether not of matter in the mass according to recent scholars radiant heat must now be classed with light under the head of electricity three forms of heat transference conduction convection radiation are all to be seen in the consideration of the common steam or water radiator convection brings masses of hot water or steam from the furnace to the radiator conduction transfers the heat to the outside of the radiator radiation carries the heat to every part of the room to be heated the application of heat to mechanical purposes has been astonishingly slow of development from the time of the invention of heron's eolipile there elapsed one thousand years before the idea of heat as a source of motive power was turned to practical account steam fountains were designed in the seventeenth century but they were merely modifications of the eolipile and applied for ornamental purposes only the first successful attempt to combine the principles and forms of mechanism then known into an economical and convenient machine was made by thomas newcomen a blacksmith of dartmouth england assisted by john galley newcomen constructed an engine an atmospheric steam engine in seventeen eleven such a machine was set up at wolverhampton for the raising of water steam passing from the boiler into the cylinder held the piston up against the external atmospheric pressure until the passage between the cylinder and boiler was closed by a cock then the steam in the cylinder was condensed by a jet of water a partial vacuum was formed and the air above pressed the piston down this piston was suspended from one end of an overhead beam the other end carrying the pump rod the flywheel was introduced in seventeen thirty six by jonathan hulls the next great improvements were introduced by james watt in scotland becoming interested in the steam engine and its history he began to experiment in a scientific manner he took up the study of chemistry under the guidance of joseph black the originator of the doctrine of latent heat observing the great loss of heat in the newcomen engine due to the cooling of the cylinder by the jet of water at every stroke he began to ponder on the possibility of keeping the cylinder always as hot as the steam that entered it he himself tells how there flashed through his mind the happy thought of how this could be done i had gone to take a walk he says on a fine sabbath afternoon i had entered the green by the gate at the foot of charlotte street and had passed the old washing-house i was thinking upon the engine at the time and had gone as far as the herd's house when the idea came into my mind that as steam was an elastic body it would rush into a vacuum and if a communication were made between the cylinder and an exhausted vessel it would rush into it and might be there condensed without cooling the cylinder this improvement it is by right of which james watt may justly be called the inventor of the steam engine the steam engine as such has practically reached its maximum of efficiency only about twenty two percent of the heat energy furnished by the coal consumed is actually converted into work even in the best triple expansion engines the efficiency of the locomotive is even lower being about seventeen per cent 
The steam turbine, the latest development of the steam engine, is in principle very much like the common windmill, the steam being driven at an angle against a multitude of little blades set in a revolving cylinder of steel, the shaft. In large sea-going vessels, this engine is rapidly replacing the old-fashioned reciprocating machine. For its efficiency is higher, it occupies less than one-tenth the floor space, and it runs without jarring the ship. The highest speeds ever attained by vessels at sea, namely about 40 miles per hour, has been made with the aid of steam turbines. The construction of a turbine is an exceedingly difficult operation, for each of the little blades must be set singly into the shaft at exactly the right angle. Skilled workmanship and much time are required in this operation, and in view of the mechanical difficulties of constructing a turbine, it does not seem so remarkable that this engine, of which the extremely simple principle was familiar to Hero of Alexandria, 120 B.C., should have waited over 2,000 years to see perfection. The efficiency of the steam engine is measured by the fall in temperature which the steam undergoes in passing from the boiler through the cylinder, thus driving the pistons, to the condenser. It is evident that as this heat is made to disappear, work must be produced. The greater the fall in temperature, then, the higher the efficiency of the engine. Unfortunately, the steam engine is limited in this regard, for the highest temperature that can safely be maintained in the boiler is about 200 centigrade, the steam being then under a pressure of 15 atmospheres, or 225 pounds upon every square inch of surface. The lowest practicable limit of temperature in the condenser is about 30. Hence the loss of heat and the resulting efficiency will be measured by a fall of 170 degrees, 200 minus 30. A perfect steam engine should render about 36% of its heat energy into work. But owing to friction and other causes, no steam engine has ever been made which approaches this degree of efficiency. The gas engine has a considerably larger range of temperature fall possible in its mechanism. The explosion of the gases takes place at a very high temperature. Engineers predict that the gas cylinder engine and turbine engine will before long supplant the corresponding types of steam-driven machines. In conclusion, then, heat must not be considered as a weightless fluid, for the interchange of heat and mechanical energy is not consistent with this belief, nor is heat latent any more than the lifting power of a steam crane is latent. All the evidence of today points to the conclusion that heat is only one of the many forms of vibration. The effect of heat upon any material body is an increased rate of vibration of its molecules. The heat that reaches the earth from the sun, however, traverses the intervening space without heating it, as the intense cold of the upper regions of the atmosphere clearly indicates. It is therefore a property of the ether that it transmits vibrations without being itself affected by them. In matter, on the other hand, all parts of a conductor must become hot when heat is transferred from one end of it to the other. Convection cannot be considered as a form of vibration at all, since it does not represent the transmission of energy from particle to particle of a mass, so much as the change of location of a relatively large amount of heat. It cannot proceed, however, without the aid of either conduction or radiation, 
inasmuch as the heat given by one mass to another can be received only through the medium of matter or ether as before observed ether-borne heat energy is now regarded as nothing more or less than electricity End of section seven